out. Can I pray? Father, I thank you for your word. It's alive and active, and it's pretty sharp because it kind of gets into our meaty areas of our heart where it kind of discerns the desires and the intents. And so, Father, have your way today. Holy Spirit, you do a far better job than me, so just speak today in the lives of people. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I uh, want to continue. We just continue. And probably uh, it'll only be another uh, a couple sessions of this, but just with the, we're looking at the seven letters of Revelation that Jesus actually wrote to the seven churches that were prominent in the first century in Asia Minor, uh, which is, uh, of course, modern-day Turkey. Uh, and uh, we're up to number the third church, uh, Pergamos. And, of course, you would be well aware that uh, these churches were facing some a fairly hefty persecution and, and going through some struggles, each of them in their own different ways. And, and Jesus commended them and then also Jesus corrected them. I'm just, I'm just glad that we serve a God that just doesn't say, oh, you're all good, do what you like. No, 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 He, he corrects us. I'm glad I have a mum and dad that corrected me because I probably wouldn't be here today who just kind of directed me sometimes, you know. If I do that, son, you'll end up in a mess and uh, I'm glad. And our God's like that, amen? He, he corrects us because He loves us. Uh, maybe you didn't have a mum and dad like that, but I understand, but uh, we have a God. And so he, he commends and he corrects. And John, John wrote it down as he had something of a vision of Jesus on an island where he was exiled, he was sent, he was jailed there in a sense. And uh, as Jesus translated this message, he wrote it down. John was the last of the disciples, the last man standing of the 12 disciples, and I said a couple of weeks ago, apparently, that it was John the Baptist. Um, it's not John the Baptist, it's John the Disciple. Is that cool? Uh, so if you heard that, you, you can just correct me. Uh, but it's John the Disciple. So um, it just as we look at the first three chapters of Revelation, we see uh, that these communities were real communities, real churches in real places. And uh, Jesus, they see these uh, churches all have unique problems, but Jesus gives them a unique answer. And he gives them, the unique answer he gives them is a revelation of himself, something special about himself that he wants to communicate. And, uh, and sometimes it's great to, um, you know, when we go through our problems, uh, we need more than just a new haircut or a new outfit or a new job or a new partner. We need a fresh revelation of what Jesus has for us. Because when we do, it's amazing how we can face what we face with a new faith uh, peace and joy. Isn't that true? So uh, it's just not what the world can give us, it's what He can give us. And so let's read it, Revelations 2, 12 to 17. Uh, and this is what it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Wow. There's a lot of, there is metaphors in Revelation. Don't be concerned because they were very understood by the Jewish people who read it at the day. And when where we don't understand it, we'll make sure that we communicate that this morning. But that's a wonderful metaphor, two-edged sword. 13, verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and uh, did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have, the, have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Jesus wasn't politically correct, was he? Um, 
I gather anybody read that, they'd say, Jesus, that's just hate speech, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's Jesus. He knows what he's saying. Um, Repent, or else I'll come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, some interesting thoughts there. What is this about? Well, once again, some context. Uh, Pergamos is a modern-day city called Bergama. It's there today. It's been there since the first century, uh, even before the first century. It had one of the, It had a prominent church, and they had a group of Christians who had gathered, and they were being a witness in this city. Um, Pergamos itself was set on a hill, and on the very top of the hill, uh, we see there was a lot of um, uh, temples to idols, temples to other gods. And at the very top of all those temples was a temple that was the biggest of all temples to the to the mystical or the mythical Greek god Zeus. Okay, sometimes he was named other things, but that's he was the he was the granddaddy of all idol worship, and uh, it was Zeus. Uh, also on those temples was a Roman temple. Uh, to the Roman emperor, because all Roman emperors, when they became emperors, were seen as gods, okay? So there we go, and uh, the Roman emperor's temple was up there as well. So the reference to Satan's throne that is given there in verse 13 is said, believed to be in reference to the temple of Zeus, because Jesus looks at it and he goes, yeah, that's Satan's throne. And uh, I was contemplating that, and I think all these people are worshipping so many different gods in this city. You know, and, and, and sometimes it doesn't really change much in society because I think we haven't built we've, we haven't built so much temples, I suppose. But we do sometimes in our nation of Australia worship other things that are not of God, aren't, don't we? And, uh, and sometimes we build statues to them, and, so to speak, but... Uh, Things sometimes haven't changed so much. Maybe Australia's God is sport sometimes. Now, I say that being a great sport lover, so I'm very well aware. Or maybe Australia's God in the Western society can be money, for instance. People bow down to that. They might literally bow down, but sometimes just want to you know, put that first in their lives, which is a sad indictment on our society because it never holds. It never gives what you think it will give. So... The common thought of the people who were not Christians in Pergamos uh, was two things. Worship all the gods, because if you worship all the gods, uh, one of them hopefully will keep us happy, and one of us will keep us safe, and one of them, one of them will give me health in life. And, and also, the second thing was appease the Romans. So let's just worship the Roman emperor, appease him, because they're in charge, and I want to live a little bit longer. I want to live to a grand old age uh, before I'm killed because the Romans made a habit of just, you know, anybody that didn't give uh, live by the system, the Roman system, they had a habit of just kind of killing them. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that kind of kept people in fear. So two things, worship all the gods, appease the Romans. What a great community to live in. The problem was the Christians didn't conform to that, did they? And uh, we all say amen for that, but they got, they got persecuted because of it. And uh, they did upset the Romans, and the Romans decided one day that they'd make an example of someone. So they gathered a man called Antipas. We read about it 
Andy Pass was a local Christian, zealous, zealous Christian for Jesus in his church. And, and they took him one day and someone drove past in the Mercedes Benz with dark tinted windows, wound it down after church and shot him. Um, I'm just giving you some kind of, not exactly really, but you know, they killed him. They probably done him through with the sword. I don't know how they killed him, but they took him out. Um, and you can just imagine next Sunday, someone says, hey, hey, where's Antipas? He's always here. He's always in the second row on the left, you know. Who's there? Uh, Vaughan. Uh, so, no, he's always there. He's always there. What happened to him? And the other Christian guy in the church says, in Pergola says, didn't you hear? Didn't you hear? No, what happened? You know, you know the, he, he, well, the Romans took him out. They killed him last Sunday after church. I mean, that would be enough to make you think about going to church and, uh, and also to question your faith. Am I really in this or not? Am I, I could die for my faith here. Am I going to stick by it? And you know, the wonderful thing about the Christian church in Pergamos, it says, he says, you hold fast to my name, even though people like Antipas, Antipas was murdered and martyred for me. So 10 out of 10 to the church in Pergamos for that, holding faithful to their belief in Jesus. Um, so if they're doing so well as a church, what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, the problem was Jesus says there's an error. There's a false teaching that you're engaged in. And uh, how you're living your life and the style of your Christian living is not pleasing uh, to God. And in verse 14, let me read it again. This is what it says. I have a few things against you because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says, I hate that. Balaam and Balak, who are they? Well, in the history of Jewish, uh, I suppose the Jewish nation, they came out of Egypt, they're in slavery for 400 years, uh, God brought them out through Moses. They've come through the Red Sea, remember? The Red Sea opened up for the Jewish nation. It closed for the Egyptian army. And all the chariots and horses drowned in the, in the, uh, in the Red Sea. And we see that um, as the nation of Israel, they journeyed through all the other countries on the way to the Promised Land, <coughs> which was 40 years Mind you, they could have probably done it in about four days to four weeks. They took a while because God was sorting them out. Uh, and so they were crossing through other people's territory. And some of the kings of the nations they were crossing through got a little nervous because they'd heard the stories back then when their God had got rid of the, Israel, the Egyptian army. And so they're thinking, is God going to do that to us? And so particularly Balak was the king of Moab which Jesus mentions, and Balak said, I want to stop their progress of this Jewish nation. I don't want them coming through my land. I don't want to go the way like the Egyptians. I, you know, what are we going to do? So he hires this evil prophet who wasn't a Christian prophet. He was a prophet of, of foreign gods and idols. His name was Balaam. And so he says, Balak says to Balaam, curse the Israelites. Because Balak believed in all these gods. Just curse them. You've got authority, just curse them. And so Balaam goes out to curse them, and four times he tries to curse the Israelites and the Jewish nation, and four times he ends up blessing them. He just can't speak a cursing. God literally stopped him, and I just think that, you know, what God has blessed, you can't, can't be cursed, amen? So 
So we see he goes to speak, and Balaam says, what are you doing, mate? I hired you, paying you good money, and you won't curse him. He says, I'm trying to curse him. And Balak says, I've got a plan, I've got a plan. How about instead of cursing them, if I can't curse them, let's just lure them, just lure them to compromise their standard and to come and worship your God, Baal, B-A-A-L, which I've been told is actually related to Zeus, <laughs> okay? Anyway, and not only lure them in to worship your, our God, Baal, but let's also get the Israelite men to sleep uh, with the Moabite women and we'll be integrated and they'll see us as kind of like family so they won't attack us and their God won't hurt us. So how do we about we do that? And so they tried that out. And in Numbers 25, verse 21, that's exactly what they did. And that's exactly what they, and the Israelites fell for it. Not all of them, but some of them. They compromised their standard, um, engaged and married and slept with the Moabite women, had families. They started to worship Baal. Um, um, you know, that was a sad day. Would you agree? Turn the page. <laughs> I've got it in. I've got so much information. I don't. I can't fit it on an iPad anymore. Oh, I can. It's just that it doesn't show me enough because my. To be honest, my font is so big now. <laughs> it doesn't fit on this size. <laughs> How big can you get iPads? <laughs> Ten inch. <laughs> I have to look into that. Anyway, um, uh, so did it's interesting. Interesting that, you know, uh, as I said, what God has blessed can't be cursed. I'm so glad for that. And uh, I praise God for that because, you know, the interesting thing is, is, if we can't be cursed, then we just have to be careful because the devil will just try and sometimes lure us and entice us into a lifestyle of compromise. He's done it. He's done it through the centuries. Do, do you know in Genesis chapter 1 to 3, you've got Adam and Eve and uh this, the serpent comes along, Satan comes along as a serpent, and he says to Adam and Eve, he, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, oh, Adam and Eve, God's not real. God doesn't really exist. He's just a figment of your imagination. He doesn't say that, which you would expect him to say that if he's trying to get rid of God, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't, discred he doesn't say God's not real. No, what he says is he, he just discredits God and compromises Adam and Eve's standards. See? Happened in Genesis. It happened in Numbers chapter 25 with the nation of Israel. It's happening in Pergamos to the church and some of the Christians there. And you know what? It happens today still as well. Let's just, let's just water down our faith to a level. Let's just, you know, loosen some of that belt, our standards, and let's just engage in that because after all, we want to, it's in the 21st century, aren't we? So interesting, isn't it? Satan has been doing it ever since, ever since. And Jesus, you know what Jesus says? That that's a stumbling block. You know what? A stumbling block that, that continually trips us up in life. That's what Jesus, he says, that's a stumbling block. And then if it wasn't enough about Balaam and Balak, he also says you're holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. <laughs> and you know, uh, if, if you know anything about the Nicolaitans, uh, they're a group of people who call themselves Christians. They believed in Jesus. They accepted Jesus. But what they did was they said uh, they lived uh, according to their rules and said, you know what? Jesus accepts us because we've got grace. 
you remember in the New Testament, uh, one of the uh, Christian writers said, you know, should I continue to sin because of His grace? No! Grace is not a license to continue just to do wrong, is it? Grace is, grace is an opportunity to pull back and to receive His mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so the Nicolaitans, it actually said about them, and I'll quote, they are an unrestrained and indulgent people which will engage in any sensual and sexual indulgence under the belief that Jesus was okay with it. Okay, that's the reality of it. Nicolaitans wanted to fit in with the culture around their society. And what we find is, is that they continually uh, would engage with the locals. And they'd go to the, have a, go to the, um, the community meals. And where were the community meals? They'd be up on the hill in the temples. And the Nicolaitans would go up there and they'd engage in a community meal. And, you know, the truth is it, it didn't seem like it was a pretty harmless thing. But the truth is the food they were eating had been offered to idols. And so after a while, it kind of, they got a bit more relaxed, unguarded. The temple prostitutes started to talk to them. They had talked back. And then it got to the point where they engaged in immoral practices with them. And uh, they were doing and they were no different to the community they were living in. This is the Christians who were Nicolaitans, okay? Interesting. Uh, not interesting, very sad, really. And so we see the Nicolaitans, that's why Jesus, he says, Jesus just clearly says, you know what? I hate this conduct. They're eating food offered to idols, which is really the first step to worshiping that idol. And you're engaged in uh, sleeping around and engaging immoral sexual activity. Could I just probably add that clearly before they were ever married to anybody, they're still engaged in that kind of practice. Um, so how did they get to that point? How did they get to that point? Subtle compromise, hey? They're just a thin edge of the wedge, thin edge of the wedge. Do you know there's the story of the frog in the vessel of water? You, a lot of you have heard it. Let me just relate it again because I think it's really important that we uh, just grab this, what was happening in this church. Because it's kind of, because the world wants to squeeze you into its mold. Even today, in, in this century, squeeze you into your into a mold. You know, there's a frog, they place it in a, in a cool uh, vessel of water. They put it on a stove. They, and the, the frog likes the coolness of the water. And they just slowly increase the temperature. Now, the interesting thing is the frog has the ability to regulate its own body temperature. And so it really doesn't notice the heat being turned up that much at first. And as the water gets hotter, it just regulates its body temperature. And it's cool. It's right. Now, eventually, the frog senses, oh, the water is getting a little bit too warm. But unfortunately, it was a bit too late because the warm water had started to get so hot it was zapping the strength of the frog and so it had no ability when it finally wanted to jump out to jump out it couldn't do it and as the water then reached a height and it before it knew the frog died as it boiled in the water the question is really simple what killed the frog many of us would say the boiling water but the truth is, the inability of the frog to decide when to jump out of the water is what killed the frog. The inability of the frog to stop deceiving itself by saying, I can adapt my body temperature and I'm okay. Do you know millions of people maybe who believe in Jesus, and I say this with all due respect, that 
they've lost their ability to jump because the water temperature around them has risen slowly and the culture of the world has slowly encroached upon their mindsets. And it really is a challenge for them to step back and step out of that. It's not that they can't, but they're deceiving themselves and they're slowly dying, at least spiritually. And it challenges me. You can say, uh, can I just say, well, Jesus used one word. He said, repent, which means to change, which means to um, step away from, turn around. Um, Let me use one word, jump. (laughs) Jump. There's times when I've had to jump. There's times when I've probably felt, oh, I've just, and I've left it a bit and and regretted it. You know, folks, you've got to realize the temperature of the culture around us. We've got to realize that. Um, why should I, you know, stand up and, you know, stand up for standards and be a righteous person? Not to be a goody two-shoes. Not so that we can then point fingers at others and say, oh, if only I'm so much better than you. Now, I know that we'd literally not probably say that, but how we need to be careful that we don't say that. Um, because it's Because the truth is, is that it's not people that we need to sometimes judge but their lifestyles and their the way they live their life is the thing that really needs to be kept away from um you know we have a world today that's asking us to accept all different types of lifestyles and uh mainstream advertising these days i notice is just allowing on mainstream you know prime time television advertising of same sex couples kissing and it's just like they slip it in, you know, it's a, I don't know, it can be some kind of advertising on a car or, and all of a sudden you've got, before you know it, you just see it in front of your eyes. I don't know if you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about? I, yeah, you know. And I'm like, did that just happen? I've never seen that before. And I've never seen that in my life, in the la- but I have in the last 12 months. So, so we get this, this culture that's trying to squeeze into our world. And Jesus looks at that and he says, it's a stumbling block. And he just calls people to repent. And, you know, there's a word today that no one really says, but it's what they're all asking us to do is just be tolerant. Just be tolerant. Just be tolerant of what's happening. The tolerance is the opposite of the message of Jesus in some ways. J- Jesus embraces people. He just was not tolerant of their lifestyles and their sinfulness. Okay? We need to be the same. Come on. Uh, you know, we need to, uh, he loved people. I mean, there was a woman brought before Jesus once in the, the Gospels of in the New Testament. She'd been caught in the act of adultery, and after everything had been sorted and the people walked away who wanted to stone her, he said, is anyone here to condemn you? She looks around and says, no one, Lord. And he says, you know what? Neither do I condemn you. What a great statement Jesus makes. He reaches out to this lady, not, not literally embraces her, but embraces her heart and says, you know what? I'm not going to condemn you. But you know what? Just don't go and do it anymore. Just don't go and sin anymore. I pray that she did. I'd love to think when I walked into heaven that she'd be the first person. She at the gate, you know, whatever. Whether we're going to recognize people or not, I don't know. She said, you know what? I didn't. (laughs) I gave it up that day because someone loved me so much. And that was Jesus. And I think I'm so grateful that Jesus, while he was tolerant with people, but he was intolerant of the world standards and the p- things like that. 
you know, I'm very aware that tolerance says, you know what, you just need to be tolerant of all that's happening in the world today. Just be tolerant of it. Just be tolerant. You know, they can, tolerance says you can do what you like, whatever passion, whatever desire. It's free. Just, it's a free world. Do what you want. And just don't let it hurt anybody. <laughs> you ever heard that before? Whatever you feel, repentance says, you know what, you need to change. Uh, change your heart. Change your lifestyle. Um, you know, and if we wanted to keep a whole generation from the kingdom of God, all you have to do is keep them for two things. Don't let them know about repentance. Don't talk to them about repentance, that is changing things, and just teach them tolerance instead. And that's what happened in Numbers 25 with Balaam and Balak and the nation of Israel got sucked into it. That's what happened in Pergamos in the church in the first century, 95, around 95 AD. That's what's happening in society right now. That's what happened in, in Sydney this week. And do I have to say any more? Yeah, uh, and you know what? I feel for the people in that, that pride, pride march and pride walk because they're precious people who God loves, but totally deceived by the, the enemy of this world who hates them. And yet Jesus loves them. So we don't have to get self-righteous and say, oh, I'm much better than that. No, because there goes I, but the grace of God. Right? Come on. The truth is, I probably am not that interested in, in walking in a gay Mardi Gras, to be honest. But, you know, there's other things that you and I do which is, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But for the grace of God. Because this world needs saving. Amen. And uh, so if the problem in Revelations... If that's the problem with the church, I mean, they stood fast and named Jesus, but they just allowed the slippery slope of compromise to take control in some areas of the folk in their church. And so if that's the problem, what is the, what, what is the revelation they needed to see of Jesus? And verse 12 says, And so the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things. It says, He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Right there's the answer. Did you see it? The two-edged sword. Everybody knew what a two-edged sword was in Pergamos. Every Jew, every person knew what a two, every soldier had a two-edged sword. Romans walked the streets with two-edged swords. They knew that what Jesus was talking about was a two-edged sword. And so the metaphor is an incredible metaphor. The Bible talks about it. It's the what? The Word of God, isn't it? It's His truth. It's His standard. It's His roadmap. It's His words to us, whether it's the Logos word or the written word of God, or whether it's the Rima word that you get when you read it sometimes, the revelation of that stands out at me. Whatever it may be, it's incredibly beneficial and healthy for us not to be a compromising people because it gives us truth. There's a lot of books you can read, but I tell you one, there's one that you need to read. And it's God's truth and word to us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful and is sharper than any, the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost what? Thoughts and desires. So when I read God's word, it's amazing so many times I, I read it and it goes, oh, I feel, you know, it's like this knife, kind of, not literally, but it goes into my heart and goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to change that. I read something else, go, oh, another area. <laughs> Blew it there. I'm so thankful that God reaches out in mercy and grace and shows me. You know, one of the American founding fathers' name was Thomas Jefferson. He had a kind of belief in some kind of higher power, but I'm just not quite sure whether it was God because he took his Bible and as he started to read it, there was things he didn't like in it. So he got a pair of scissors and he'd cut out whole sections of the Bible. 
Did you know that? You can go online and get the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Don't, I wouldn't recommend it, but you can go online if you're just interested in a quick read. Parts of it are completely chopped out. Do you know what Thomas Jefferson, um, a man who was an intelligent man, you'd think he would know better, but what he was doing, he was creating a God that was much more palatable to his own uh, tastes and preferences. And I'm sometimes, I've got to be honest, we can read God's Word and we say, ooh, don't want to read that. Do you want to read the first several chapters of Romans? I mean, it talks about things that are happening right now in the world. And, oh, how am I supposed to, you know, I don't want to read that. You know? So we just have to realize, don't we? <laughs> Gee, when I read God's Word, does it really say that I shouldn't engage in premarital sex? I mean, I love someone. Jesus, honestly, we live in the 21st century. Surely that, no, that's the truth. And he doesn't say it because he's trying to beat up on us or destroy us. He's saying it because he loves us because he knows the best plan and purpose for our lives. So the revelation was the two-edged sword. But as we continue, we see that now God says in verse 17, he says, um, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna to eat. What's that about? And then he says, I'll give him a white stone. Wow, white stone. It's like getting socks and jocks, you know, for Christmas. Oh, thank you. I needed these so much. I would have preferred, a, you know, 10 cartons of um, summer rolls. But anyway, socks and jocks will be. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except to him who receives it. So it says, manna in a white rock. What's that all about? Manna, look, connect the dots. Children of Israel. Living in the wilderness for 40 years, they had to eat something. God would drop a mist in the morning. It would solidify like a taco shell, you know. And then they have this um, quail mince you could put in there. And um, it was brilliant. They boiled it. They fried it. They did everything to it for 40 years. They ate it. It kept them alive. It sustained them in the most difficult times of their life. In the wilderness and the desert. Mena. They called it mena. It's the same reference to the sort of spirit. Our manna is His Word to our lives. His Word is so life-giving. You know, when you sometimes you'll read God's Word, and then sometimes you'll just be going through a difficult time, and something will come to your memory, and it's like, oh, yes, yeah, Psalm 23, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are there with me. Thank you, God. Right now, I feel like death, but I tell you, this week I felt a bit like that. I got sick, you know, because my whole family got sick. They're all vomiting and everything else, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, um, it, to be honest, it wasn't that bad. It was only 48 hours. But, um, uh, you know, sometimes you walk through things, and you go, oh, I feel like, oh. But, you know, then you remember God's Word, and it brings life to your spirit. Life to your spirit. It's just what you need right at that moment. Something of God's Word. And Jesus is the living Word. It says in John's uh, Gospel, the living, uh, living Word to us as well. You've got the Logos, the written Word. You've got the Rema Word, the Revelation Word. Jesus, the living Word. It's all of that. You know, some of us say, well, you know, when I read the Bible, I don't remember it, but that's okay. I don't remember what Michelle cooked me last week, but I'm sure glad I ate it. It sustained me. And I tell you, when you read God's Word, when you have those devotions, or you sit under a, in a church where God's Word's preached, it's, it brings life and sustenance to you. 
it brings something that's going to give you life. And you know, you can stand strong against a culture which wants to squeeze you, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, into its mold. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what God's good and perfect will may be. See, we don't need to be squeezed. We need to realize when we take God's word, folks, we are going to advance. You and your family I can know God's strength and peace and joy as you live in the principles of His truth and be blessed. And we don't have to hide under a rock. We can continue to be lights for Jesus Christ because we've got God's Word. So here's the manner, the manner, putting, just reading, not being squeezed. And then Jesus says, uh, He says, uh, what does He say? White rock. White rock. What's a white rock got to do with anything? Uh, a white rock. What's that? Remember, these are relevant metaphors for the people of the day. When Jesus said that and John wrote it down and the Christians at Pergamos wrote, read this letter, they would have been celebrating a white rock. How special is that? Because they knew what it was. If you were put uh, before a judge in a criminal and you had some, something that you'd done wrong, the judge would look at you and he had a black rock, and he had a white rock. And if you were received, if you were given the black rock, that block, black rock, uh, what it was saying is you're condemned, you're guilty, uh, you'll, be put in, you'll be put in some element of imprisonment or whatever it may involve. So that was not a good day if you got a black rock. But if you got a white rock, it means you were forgiven, you were pardoned, you were not condemned, and you were let and you were set free. And Jesus comes along to this church in Pergamos that is kind of compromised in some of their standards, that's feeling the shame and the pain and the hurt of what they've done. And he says, You know what? As you come draw to me and follow me, I'm going to give you a white rock, and there's going to be a different name because your name up to this point has possibly been guilty. Shamed, uh, you've been, uh, uh, you know, all these things that's happened, you feel terrible about it, but now there's a new name, and I'll, the new name that I want to give you is really, really simple. This is what it is. I want to say your new name is pure, forgiven, blessed, whole. And Jesus says, that's the white rock I want to give you. Your past is past. Your future is all ahead of you. Don't go back there. Just continue to walk on in strength. Come on. He just says, turn to me. And you know what? You've got a new name. I give you a white rock. And if there was anything so gratifying as a white rock, it was this rock that the, that the judge would give the person to say, you're pardoned. You're forgiven. You're free. And Jesus gives that to us. And on the cross of Calvary, we see that Jesus took the black rock and he took all the things that we should be called wicked, guilty, ashamed. And he says, he, he was called that. And he says, you're going to be called blessed, uh, forgiven, forgiven. Uh, uh, all those wonderful things. And so I'm just so thankful this is what Jesus was saying. And as the team come this morning, you know what? Um, I want to just say to us, maybe like the church of Pergamos, we, the truth is we haven't got everything right. And we've walked th through and maybe through some barriers and we've done some things wrong and, and, and uh, we're not perfect. And there wouldn't be a person here today that is. But I'm just so glad that we have a, a Savior that kind of points out that these things are right because through the Word of God, we see that Jesus holds the conviction because he's the, He holds the 
two-edged sword. But at the same time, he gives us grace, the white rock that releases us from the past. And if we could just stand today as we close. We're going to just sing one last song today in a moment, worship. But could you just close your eyes for a moment? Just give yourself just a moment to think. Just a moment. Just imagine you're the only one here just this morning. No one else around you, just yourself. Maybe there's some things that you know you just need to jump today. You just need to jump. And uh, this message is not to condemn you. This message is there to just release you. To give you the very best. I am so glad that we serve a God that not only gives us the correction, but He gives us, He commends us, and He gives us answers. And He extends His Word to us, and His Word is life and hope and a future. And then He extends a white rock to us, and He says grace and mercy and kindness are found right there. And I'm so thankful for that. And you know, Sometimes we just need to respond to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or it's for Him to respond to Him again, just to live for Him. It's not to say that I'm going to get every moment in my life perfect in the future, but it's not. But it's also to say, you know what, I'm not going to take His grace and misuse it and say, oh, I can do whatever I like, like the Nicolaitans who just said, oh, we believe in Jesus, but He's given us grace and we'll just continue to do whatever we want to do. No, that's not grace. That's going back into bondage again and, but Jesus extends his hands to us and you know I've found that the simplest of things to do in responding to Jesus either for the first time or responding again to him because the Bible says just two things believe in your heart in Jesus Christ he's the son of God and what he's done for us at Calvary and dying and rising again to take our sin and also confession with our mouth it's a confession to him not to anybody else but it's to Him. Even though if we come to Christ, we will make it public and we will tell other people we've responded to Jesus. And you know, it's just a simple prayer, but it's a prayer that you've got to make. I can't make it for you. And I've become so aware of this this year. And it, it, it can be something like this. Lord, I just come before you. I thank you for Jesus and what He's done for me. I receive that His death and resurrection means I'm forgiven for my sin because He took my sin. I receive that and I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead so I might be forgiven and receive your mercy and love. Help me to live for you. I confess with my mouth my belief in you. Help me to live for you and to live the way you want me to live. Not to be self-righteous, but just to be God-righteous. Amen. And that's a prayer that can be prayed. And if you pray that prayer today, you know, I, I just come and see us, come and tell us, but that's a prayer that needs to happen. And you know, Christians, if you've prayed that before, don't take it for granted. Sometimes I just, every day in my own little quiet time, I just come before and I say, God, just thank you that you forgive me my sin. It just keeps me focused and centered on that he's the one and all that this world throws at me, I just don't need to bow to that. I just need to bow to him. So, Lord, I just thank you for every person 
Lord, draw them, draw us closer to yourself. And give them the strength to jump if they have to jump today. Lord, give them the strength to say no to the world that wants to compromise us. Help us to live right for you. Because of Jesus, we ask. Amen. We're going to 